Heavenly Father, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, for your glorious word. Lord, how refreshing it is and the privilege that we have as your people to have been given a spirit of understanding, eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Thank you for mercifully saving us. We ask that this morning we might be reminded of our great and mighty eternal King, your glorious Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Guide our time now, Lord, in this Sunday school setting, from every class in this building, that your people would be ministered to, that we might be ministered through. Again, for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning now we, we move out of the time of the judges and into the establishment of the monarchy of Israel. Uh, back in Deuteronomy in the 17th chapter, uh, Moses prophesied that the people of Israel would cry for a king. They would desire to have a king uh, like the nations that surround them. And then the Lord goes on in that chapter through Moses to give instruction as to how that king is to lead what that king is to do, what that king is not to do. And more times than not, as we know, um, the kings of Israel failed miserably. (laughs) But nevertheless, we see uh, the sustaining grace of God through and through. But between the time of the judges and the establishment of the monarchy, Israel's first king, we meet Samuel. He's introduced as the son of Hannah, uh, a woman who was at one time barren, or so she thought, unable to have children. And you remember the story that she began to pray. And she prayed that the Lord would give her a son. And then she went on, when she did have a son, to dedicate that child to the service of the Lord. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll pick it up at verse 23. We're going to cite a lot of scripture today because, again, all I want to do is establish the, the beginning of the monarchy and what took place through the early life of Samuel here and right into the rulership of Saul. Notice in verse 23... Elkanah, her husband, this is the husband of Hannah, said to her, do what seems best to you, this is once she has her child, wait until you have weaned him, that would be little Samuel. May the Lord establish his word, so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, 
and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, at this time, um, Eli was the uh, judge in operation. He was the priest. Um, Eli noticed one day that Hannah was praying, and she thought the woman was just you know, speaking to herself and approached her. And that's what she's referring to here. This is the son I prayed for. I dedicate him unto the Lord. And he came up under Eli in service to the temple. Now, Eli had sons of his own. And as we look at chapter 2, verse 12, we see that the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. We get to verse 22. Eli was very old and he kept hearing that his sons were doing to what his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with women who were serving in the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, "Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report. It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad." If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord, listen to this, to put those two to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. What does that remind us of? Luke chapter 2, right? Jesus in the temple... 12 years old, and he, be, he, he was uh, growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So here's young Samuel, under the care of Eli, uh, in the temple. Eli has two sons of his own. Typically, your sons would take over for you, but these sons are evil. These sons are not believers. So here then is Samuel. And we look at chapter 3. There's Samuel. You're all familiar with the story. He, he's a young lad at the time. Uh, the Lord speaks to him and says, Samuel, Samuel. In the middle of the night, he wakes up. He goes to Eli. Eli, did you call me? No, I did not call. You go back to bed. Happens again. Samuel, Samuel. He comes, Eli, did you call? No, go back to bed. Third time, Samuel. Eli, did you call me? No, I told you I didn't call you. But you know what? This must be the voice of the Lord. And certainly enough, it was. The Lord speaks to him. Verse 10, the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Lack of discipline. He didn't stop them. He confronted them. That was about it. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. 
But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that, the, that, the, he, that he told you? Hello. Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it's the Lord. Let him do what, he, what seems good to him. That's Eli's response. It's a very good response. Eli's sons are evil. God speaks to Samuel. He's going to judge them. He's going to judge his household. All Eli, Eli can do knowing God as he does is raise his hand and said, may the will of the Lord be done. Now at this time, um, Israel goes into battle with the Philistines. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and they carry it away. But judgment came to the Philistines, as we'll see in a little bit. The Philistines fought, verse 10, chapter 4. Israel was defeated. They fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell to Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Just as the Lord said, they shall die, and here they die in battle. When Eli arrived, verse 13, Eli, when he arrived, rather, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. Now at this point, verse 15, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. In verse 18, and as soon as he mentioned the ark of God having been captured, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. So at this point, his daughter-in-law The wife of Phineas, she was pregnant. Verse 19, she's about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And then she named the child, verse 21, Ichabod, saying, which means, the glory has departed. The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So here then sets the scene for Samuel. And Samuel is generally regarded as the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. But he was never a king. He is what we would refer to today as uh, maybe a prime minister, meaning first servant of the Lord. But when he grew up, according to Levitical law, his sons should have preceded him. So just as Eli had two sons, they were evil, Samuel, he has sons. But there was another problem. Just as Eli's sons didn't follow the Lord, Samuel's sons, in in a like manner, did not follow the Lord. 
Notice in 1 Samuel, jump over to chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And then Samuel prayed to the Lord. So just like the sons of Eli... These sons don't follow the Lord. You know, it's been said that God has no grandchildren. And just because someone is godly, in no way guarantees that their children are going to be godly. Amen? Now, the children of believers are blessed. Scripture tells us this. You know? We train them up in the way of the Lord. The... the, Proverbs tell us that when they are old, they shall not depart from the truth. Now, that's a proverb. That's not a guaranteed promise. So we raise them with much prayer. We teach them the truth. We live the truth. We pour into them, and we we pray for God's grace that they'll be converted because every generation needs conversion. (laughs) There's no guarantee just because your kids are born under your household. We see that throughout redemptive history. Everyone needs to be converted individually. So, as we study Judges, um, we see the pursuit of Israel to conform to what? Yeah, to the nations around them, to those outside of the covenant of grace, to those outside of, of the faith. They want to be like them time and time again. And now they want a kingdom, just like those around them. Now until this time, as you know, there was one ruler over Israel. And who was that? God himself. Almighty God. And during the life of Samuel, great blessing was poured out upon Israel. Towards the end of his life, the heart of Israel had once again become hardened. And at this point, they did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But this time, they forsook God like they had never done before. They want a king. They want a monarchy. They no longer want a theocracy. They want a monarch. Now, a theocracy means, of course, God rules and God reigns. And that that term was actually coined by the first century historian Josephus Flavius. And what he did is he he recognized that the Greeks of the first century um, understood three types of government. Number one, a monarchy, which means an undivided rule of one ruler. An aristocracy, a government run by the best and the most privileged. And then, of course, anarchy, which is the absence of government. 
in uh, lawlessness and political disorder. Well, Josephus made a point that Israel believed in those three kinds of um, government uh, along with the Greeks, but they also understood a unique kind of system of government that did not fit any one of those three categories, and that was what's known as a theocracy. So he's credited for coining that term. So Josephus understood theocracy was a fourth form of government for which God and his law were sovereign over and above his people. So as 1 Samuel begins, Israel here again was at a low point spiritually. The priesthood, as we see, was corrupt. Eli's sons were worthless. God puts them to death. The, The Ark of the Covenant is no longer in the tabernacle. And the Philistines had taken the Ark, and they used it or set it up as a kind of victory trophy. We defeated Israel. Now you would think, well, well, what's God going to do about that? Well, as we read the scripture, he did do something about it, and he brought forth a plague upon those people. And every time these people would come near the Ark of the Covenant, they began to drop like flies. So the Philistines are now paranoid. Once it's set up, after all this sickness and all this loss, they set the Ark of the Covenant on on an ox cart, and they yoke together two milk cows, and they go, just send it off. If 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 it's of this God, then it'll be carried out of here and will go where it's supposed to go. And sure enough, yoked up to these two milk cows, they travel right on back to where they where it belongs. So that's everything that's going on at this point. And the bottom line here, Israel wants a king. Chapter 8 and verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king. Now here's Samuel answering the people. He's going, people, listen. Listen and listen closely, people. These will be the ways of the king that you desire. Take heed. (laughs) The the king who will reign over you, he'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyard and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your, your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day you will cry out because you're king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, (laughs) there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Who do you want fighting your battle, a man or God? (laughs) We are so much like this. 
There's an old saying, when you're in trouble, where do you go? To the throne or to the phone? You ever heard that? Where do you go, to the throne or to the phone? Do we, do we seek man first or we go to God first? And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice. Make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Just as was prophesied in Deuteronomy 17, here now in Samuel it comes to pass. If they want a king, give them a king, says the Lord. Which is ultimately an aspect of, of divine judgment, is it not? Turn, God lifts his hand. Which is really the worst kind of judgment there is. You know, you watch, I like watching the news listen to people talk and the commentators about the news and everyone's an expert and they bring in all these experts and you know everyone's cheering and applauding and clapping because uh, you know the, the government of New York now has <clears throat> allowed for gay marriage and all this type of thing and of course some preacher stands up as is a preacher's job and they mock this on TV and they say you know uh, the more that America gives itself over to allowing for gay marriage, God's going to judge this nation. And the reality is, because it is happening, we are under the judgment of God. Already. Lifting His hand. It's already in motion. (laughs) Give them what they want. Give them their king. Allowing people or turning people over to their evil inclinations. Now, knowing God as we do, um, redemptively, historically, and personally, we know that God takes a mess like this and in his, under his sovereign framework, which he has preordained anyhow, God's will will be accomplished through it and he will be glorified in the midst of it and in the end his purposes are fulfilled. And by establishing um, this monarchy, we know that through that line of kings would come who? The Lord Jesus Christ. That would come through the line of Judah. The first king, King Saul, he comes through the line of who? He's a Benjamin. comes from the line of Benjamin, from the tribe of Benjamin. So God would bring about his divine plan. And Samuel knew at this point, this is not a rejection of me. Right? We get very personal. This isn't a rejection of me. This is a rejection of God. God is being rejected here. So let them have their king. This is now a a monarch which is about to be established, which means one chief, one ruler, one sovereign, so to speak. 
And when we get to Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 9, God speaks of a man of great stature, head and shoulders above all the rest. He's a tall man. There was no one as handsome as this man in that day. And when you see someone who's personable, which means good-looking or charismatic, who are people drawn to? A person like that or someone like the Apostle Paul who was not of any comely kind of um, personality or looks? What do people typically like? They're drawn to the personable, the good-looking, the funny, those that are head and shoulders above the rest, so to speak, in physical stature. So, here he is. But when we read Genesis 49, prior to the... uh, uh, um, prophecy through Moses that they would want a king, there was a promise in Genesis 49 verse 9. It says, the scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. So long ago, long before this, long before the people cry out for a king, God made a promise, a prophetic statement that the scepter shall not depart from the tribe of Judah until Shiloh comes. But even so, the first king comes from the tribe of Benjamin, not Judah. Shiloh appears 33 times in Scripture, and it has two different forms of meaning. The first has to do with a person and the characteristics of, of his kingdom. In peace, prosperity, and tranquility. And the second is a place. Just read through Samuel and you read about Shiloh time and time again. It's a place where the tabernacle stood. So here now, this promise ultimately would be fulfilled, but here now at this point, a king would rise up from the tribe of Benjamin, not Judah. And then, as you know, Saul, soon after being anointed as king, starts to take responsibility for things he's not responsible for. He begins to presume. He would take upon himself a responsibility that was Samuel's. Samuel was the one who was to offer sacrifice before God. And one day, Saul is waiting on Samuel, and he's not showing up according to Saul's timetable, so Saul takes this practice into his own hands. He sacrifices this animal before the Lord. So he gets arrogantly anxious. He takes this responsibility upon himself, and God judges him. God said, because you have done this thing, God has rejected you. And he's reserved for himself a man after his own heart. And who was that? David. One who will replace you and your house. So, you know the rest of the story with regard to Saul. He, throughout his life, responds 
with anger, with rage, jealousy, envy. And what's connected to jealousy and envy? Pride, which is also the product of fear. He fears David. He goes after David. He hunts David down. He wants David dead. And where did all that trouble start? With a giant that came from the Philistines by the name of Goliath. Goliath and the Philistine armies confront Saul and his armies. They're mocking God. And Saul really doesn't want anything to do with him. The little David comes out and he stands up and basically says, Who is this talking smack about my God? It's Goliath, it's Goliath the giant. Remember they put Saul's armor on little David, his coat of mail, which is like a, a, a bodysuit of chain, linked chain type of thing. It's too, he couldn't move in it. He couldn't move around. David says, forget this. He goes, picks up five smooth stones. And he, he's, he's a master... Um, What's it called? Slingshot. What do you call a slingshot expert? Sling artist? I don't know. He's an expert, and even to this day, shepherds are expert um, at just landing stones to scare the sheep back where they need to be. They'll just, whoosh, just inches away. It's amazing. So here's young David. He comes and he confronts this giant. The giant laughs and mocks, and pretty soon... He's laying on the ground with a stone in his skull and then they chop off his head. Now he's just another dead guy. And the people start to sing. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. And from that point on, Saul wants this little man dead. And then, of course, you know the story. He's back and he's forth. And, you know, God sends a, uh, a, a dark spirit upon Saul. And again, this is for his sovereign good. And every time David plays his musical instruments, it calms Saul. And then before you know it, he's trying to run a spear through David. And he's after him. And later on, he's in a, he's in a cave. And David could have killed Saul. But he spares his life on two different occasions. So this Saul was Israel's first king. Here now the monarchy is established. And he comes not from the tribe of Judah, but from the tribe of Benjamin. Now we all know of another Saul, don't we, from the tribe of Benjamin? When we get to the New Testament, we meet Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of Pharisees who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Certainly named after the first king of Israel, Saul. The first Saul, his life would end in disgrace. The second Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin, would go on to become the apostle to the Gentiles, preaching the gospel of the ultimate king, of the king of kings, who came from the tribe of Judah. That's the man he would preach about. We see redemption everywhere, don't we? Time and time again. 
Redemption, redemption, redemption. Even the name Saul from the tribe of Benjamin is redeemed (laughs) because of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Just as was promised way back in Genesis 49. Now, to close, the, the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel are literally framed by two friends, uh, references to the anointed king that is, that is to come, the ultimate king. And again, as this monarchy is established, next week we'll look at the life of David, then we'll, um, uh, the Davidic kingdom, we'll look at the life of Solomon and so on after that. But what we want to see established here today is that which the people cried out for in God's sovereign purposes in and through it all, which was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ from the line of the tribe of Judah. But anyway, uh, these two books are, are, are framed with two different references to this anointed one. The first comes in the uh, Song of Hannah. You know, once she gives birth to little Samuel... And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10, which reads, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So there's the song of Hannah. When we get to 2 Samuel 22 and verse 51, we see the song of David, where he says, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his what? His offspring forever. Both of those songs that of Hannah and that of David, is a reference to the Messiah, the King of all kings, who will triumph over the nations to all those that are opposed of his father, all those who are set against his father. And as we know, he is the king that would come and make peace as a mediator between man and God which we'll learn about in the sermon this morning. The Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. So according to the Lord's promise, this Messiah would come through the line of David, the one who would replace Saul. And his throne, David's throne that is, would be established for how long? Forever. And when we get into learning about David, we'll we'll, uh, look at that uh, Davidic promise. And the, the events of David's life uh, recorded in the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, foreshadow the actions of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're aimed at. We'll save that for next time. So there you have the beginnings of the monarchy of Israel. A little history, that which took place, what the people were crying for, what they desired, God lifting his hand, say, we'll give you what you want, but yet it was already prophesied by God in the first place. So what is history? His story, that's right. History is his story, established by him, and yet 
is everything occurs between fickle, sinful man, whether God lifts his hand or God restrains evil among people, God's redemptive plan will be worked out so we can rest in him. Evil rulers, evil dictators will in no way hinder the plans of God. Amen? He is king. He is the ultimate king. And that's our focus, beloved. The king of kings. So whether we realize it or not, the world and the universe is under a theocratic rule. (laughs) Period. Whether man acknowledges it or not. Whether we realize it or not. He rules all things. Amen? Any comments? Anybody want to add to that? I know somebody's got something. Well, all right then. Close in prayer then. Mighty God, we thank you once again. As we look at the pages of Scripture and the failures of man, man's sinful inclinations and desires, Lord, we are not in any way removed from the very people that we just read about. But by the grace of your Son, the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who has come to make peace between God and man, we rejoice to be able to see the redemptive purposes um, that you laid down in eternity past um, come to bear in a realistic sense throughout history and to this very day. Help us to understand something more of your sovereign purposes, of your power, of your will, will, which will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, help us to pray that prayer as you instructed the disciples that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we would see the lost come to faith in Jesus Christ. Those loved ones, Lord, that surround us who are at war with you and don't even realize it. Help us to declare the truth that there was a promised one long ago who fulfilled every aspect of prophecy, every promise, the one who is king, the one who rules as king, the one who will always rule as king, and that is your son, the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Spread abroad in our hearts a greater understanding, Lord, of this history, for which is your story, and how we relate to this personally in having a right standing relationship through the one who was promised through the line of Judah that we have escaped judgment and that we will proclaim that truth to others by the power of your spirit we pray in Jesus mighty name Amen